0: I think that the last verse of that hymn we sang is really a great transition into what I want to talk about this morning in our sermon. Jesus is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, He grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, He knew. And He feeleth for our sadness, and He shareth in our gladness. These are expressions that clearly indicate to us that Jesus is a man. Jesus is human. Jesus came in true human form. And that's going to be the theme of what we talk about this morning. Last week, I introduced a quick series for the month of December that we're going to be considering together. And I told you that I I call it Christology for Christmas. It's kind of like my Christmas present to all of you. And each Sunday this month, we're going to consider a new aspect of the doctrine of Christ as revealed in Scripture. And last time, I talked about the doctrine that is perhaps the most denied of all the facets of the doctrine of Christ. Last week was the doctrine of the deity of Jesus. We see this doctrine denied all around us, from the cults, even to what seems to be good theology that that doesn't actually articulate things clearly. As the Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. puts it, we believe that Jesus is very God of very God. It is an ancient truth, the deity of Christ, that goes back to the very beginning. And it's a truth that, as I said, we cannot deny and still consider ourselves to be Christians. And perhaps there is no more important reason to know that Jesus is God than for the certainty that know that our sins are truly paid for. I mentioned this last week. If Christ isn't God, then from what we read in Mark 15, He could not have borne our sins on the cross. He could not bear an eternity worth of wrath if He Himself was not an infinite being. And He did so in a finite period of time. And of all the clear things in Scripture concerning the deity of Christ, his explicit claims, how he was referred to as God by others, the miracles, his resurrection, I believe that truth that he bore all of our sins and all of the penalty for our sins is the clearest way for us to think about how Jesus is truly God. But... Jesus needed not only to be truly God in order to pay for human sin, as we learned in our study about the propitiation of Christ a few weeks ago, he also had to be truly man. This is more the kind of thing that we typically think of in the Christmas season. I just listed the text, read off the text that we read in the carol, and in the Christmas carols we sing, and in in the, the imagery of the nativity scene around us at Christmas time, we think often about the humanity of Christ. We think about the glory of his title, Emmanuel, which means God with us. We think of the birth of a king, the one who will one day sit on the throne of David. And so it might just be that the doctrine of the humanity of Christ is the most Christmassy of all the doctrines of Christ. And so today's sermon might be the most Christmassy of all as we we go through this season, this series for the season. And so this morning I'm going to give you some teaching on the humanity of Jesus as the second part of our series in Christology for Christmas. Last time it was the doctrine of his deity, the fact that he is God, and today it's the doctrine of his humanity, the fact that Jesus is truly human like we are human. And in considering the truth of Scripture concerning the humanity of Christ, there is truly so much that we could look at. It's, trying to come up with a way to, to format this lesson is immensely difficult because we could go just about anywhere in Scripture to pull a text that helps us to consider it. And I want, though, this week, even though last time I, when we were talking about the deity of Christ, I, I built an argument for why we ought to think of Jesus Christ as divine, this week I want to more or less presume that we will think of Jesus as a man. And I want to do this partly because Scripture really makes it clear that Jesus was indeed a human. We see evidence of it very clearly, even in what we read in Mark today. He, he was offered drink. He was scourged. He died. He was put in a tomb. These things indicate, us, indicate to us that this person was indeed a true human. He was born. He grew. He got hungry. He thought the way humans think. He built normal relationships. Notice how people came to him and were sad when he had died. He was a very normal human person. So it really is just a given in the Bible that Jesus is a man. And we're also in debt to the church fathers who fought arduously for this doctrine in the early centuries of the church. It did come under attack, and most notably in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, We have a very clearly articulated creed and statement about the humanity of Christ. I believe I put it in your bulletins if you want to read it with me or follow along as I read it. This ancient council put this statement into pen. So, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body of one essence with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same of one essence with us as regards his humanity. Like us, in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days, for us and for our salvation, the same born of Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity." It's a mouthful to say and think about. But we see in that statement everywhere that it says regarding his humanity, he's like us. He was physically born. He had a rational mind and soul. He was hungry. All the things that are normal for a human to experience, Jesus as a human experienced. And so for today, I want to focus our attention instead of on the what, Jesus is human, What is his humanity? It's like our humanity. We just read about it. I want to focus instead on two somewhat different areas concerning the humanity of Christ. And you see the questions listed out in your bulletin. I want for us to ask ourselves these two questions. First of all, how should we think about the humanity of Christ? And secondly, why should we think about the humanity of Christ? We'll begin with that how question, and I phrase it that way because we think about the humanity of Christ a lot, especially this time of year. And I believe that it's easy for us to wrongly think about the humanity of Christ. All too often, we turn the humanity of Christ into something that it isn't when we we project our humanity onto him. We need to be careful that even in his humanity, he is holy and he's separate from us. Even though he's like us in his humanity, there are some clear differences in his humanity. So may we think properly about his humanity when we meditate on it at this time of year, which is right for us to do. And the fastest answer that I could give you to answer the question of how We could think about his humanity is to just tell you, go home and look up the doctrine that we call the hypostatic union. And you might say, the what? (laughs) That's a fancy word that basically says that it helps us to rightly think about the two natures of Jesus: that he's truly God and truly man at the same time. That he has that the two natures don't. Uh, infringe upon each other, that he bears all the marks of true humanity except for those that have to do with sinfulness, and that he retains at the same time that he's a man all of his divine functions. So we would say while he is being nursed by his mother Mary, he is sustaining the molecules of all the biology of his mother and himself at the same time. So he's dependent, but yet at the same time, he is creator and sustainer of all. An amazingly complex combination. And this doctrine of the hypostatic union is what, from ancient days, theologians have have proposed to try to help us understand it. But I'm not going to exposit the doctrine of the hypostatic union for you today. I would probably start seeing you fall asleep if I did. And if we want to do that sometime, Matthew, we can do that for sure. Yeah, we'll do, you already Googled it. Yeah, there we go. We can do that sometime. But one reason why I don't want to just go into the depths of a doctrine is because doctrines, as ever helpful as they are, they are man-made. Doctrines are built upon Scripture, and they're meant to help us see Scripture more clearly. But they themselves are not Scripture. So I want to try to find Scripture texts for us this morning to help drive our understanding of the humanity of Christ and how we should rightly think about the humanity of Christ. So in order to answer the question, what should we think or how should we think about the humanity of Christ, I want to direct your attention to what might be the the single most clear text on the nature of the humanity of Christ, and it's found in Philippians chapter 2. I think you have it listed there in your bulletin. So if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2 as we begin, we're going to consider some profound truths about the humanity of Christ from this text. And to give us a little bit of a running start into what Paul is saying, I'm going to begin in verse 1. So, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to stop there for now. If you've got the New American Standard, you might have the word attitude there instead of mind, that we're to have the same attitude among ourselves. I I do think that mind is a better translation because the idea of the word in context is that looking to the interests of others is the way that we should think. And we are to think that way because we have the mind of Christ. We think the way that Christ thinks. And... It's because Christ thinks of others in this way that we should view others as more important than ourselves. Christ puts others first, and so we should do the same. And then Paul, in order to support that command, think like Christ thought about others and so put their needs ahead of yours. In order to support that, he pulls an astronomical illustration from the truth of the person of Christ to support it. If you want to start a little fire in your backyard fire pit, you do not use a flamethrower or a napalm bomb. You use a match. You just you use the right tool for the job. Well, Paul here is telling us what seems to be a very simple truth. Think of others as more important than yourself. Put others first. That seems like a very simple con- concept. But in order to support it, to light that fire, he brings out a bazooka to make the point. Because the theological depths that he goes to, beginning in verse 6, are immense to make what seems to be a little point. And I think it reveals to us that it's not as little of a point as we might think. And so in Philippians 2 and verse 6, we begin to see how the depths of the doctrine of Christ being a man impact us. Look at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. So he says in verse 5, This mind is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's in these few verses that I believe we find the best answer to the question of how we should think about the humanity of Christ. When we think of Jesus as a human, how should we think about that? And I believe that the answer comes to us in three parts. First, three, There are three clear things that we should think about the humanity of Christ from these verses. And the first is this. We must realize that Jesus has always existed, but yet not, all, not always as a man. So when we think about the humanity of Christ, we're not thinking about the beginning of Christ. Because Christ has always existed before, just not always as a man. Look at verse 6. Though he was in the form of God... This indicates that Jesus existed from eternity past in the form of God, or that Jesus existed in such a way as to obviously be God from eternity past. And then at some point in time, he became a man. He added humanity to his deity. So we must remember when we worship the baby in the manger at Christmas time, when we think about the humanity of Jesus, we are thinking about an aspect of him that came at a point in time, but that person Christ existed infinitely before time began. So when we think about the humanity of Christ, we must never forget that he has always existed, yet not always as a man. Secondly, we have to realize that Jesus never ceased to be God in any way, not even by becoming a man. When Jesus added humanity to his deity, nothing was changed about his deity. In our Sunday school time, we talked about the immutability of God. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, did not change in his deity one bit when he became a man. And this is what Paul means in this text when he says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let me try to unpack that phrase a little bit for you. The word grasped there in the New Testament is often translated in other places as robbed. It's the word that refers to a thief. We actually have it translated that way in the King James in this verse, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And perhaps the better way to word things would be, be this, I think the, the the verse could better be worded this way, that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be robbed from him. Or, Jesus did not count equality with God as something that could be taken away from him. Jesus knew that in becoming a man, his deity would not be compromised. He would add humanity to his person but his deity would never be ripped away. A hum- becoming a human would never change his deity. He knew it would not be stripped away from him. So Jesus knew in his mind all along that even when he became a man, he would in no way cease to be God. And we need to understand that as well. I think sometimes when we think about Christ becoming a man and we, he's humbling himself, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but sometimes without realizing it, We end up compromising his deity by humbling him. Jesus in no way became less of God when he became a man. And we need to have that clear. His pre-incarnate deity did not suffer. It did not diminish one bit when he took human flesh. He would never, ever cease to be truly God. So we have to understand that as the second important way that we think about his humanity. First of all, that he has always existed, but not always as a man. Secondly, that by becoming a man, he never ceased to be God or didn't diminish his deity at all. And then thirdly, the third way in which we properly think about the humanity of Jesus is what we read in verse 7. That in taking the form of a human servant, Jesus deliberately made himself nothing. In taking this form, Jesus made himself nothing. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Or we could reorder that sentence by saying this. By taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men, being a servant, being born like a man, by doing those things, Jesus made himself empty or he made himself Nothing. Now let's just think for a moment about what that means. To go from being everything as pre-incarnate deity, as the second person of the Trinity from eternity past. He was everything. To go from being everything, the highest of all, in the heavenly realm with angels bowing in adoration. He was the one Isaiah saw on the throne. The angels shouting, holy, holy, holy. Holy. To go from all that into the form of a true human being was such a big step of degradation. To add humanity onto his deity was such a degradation that the only way to rightly describe it is by saying that in so doing he became nothing. Humans are the highest of God's creatures, yes, yet compared to the creator... We are nothing. So when God adds our form to his, instead of elevating humanity, it brings down Christ such that he is referred to as nothing. Even when God continues to hold on to his deity while becoming a man, he still becomes nothing in comparison to what he was. Now, how's that for trying to help you with your self-image? When Jesus added humanity to his deity, the net effect was a subtraction. Usually when we add one thing to another, it goes in the positive direction. But this addition was adding into the negative. When Jesus added humanity to deity, it brought him down as a sum total. And why is that the case? Why is it so emptying to be human? It's not only because humans are creatures, and so we're different from the creature. That's true, but it's not only that. And it's not only because we're finite and God is infinite. And it's not only because humans lack the essential qualities which make God who he is. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're not omnipotent. But it is also so emptying for Jesus to have become a man because of the vastness of of the liabilities that he was assuming upon himself when he did. Because when Jesus signed up to be a man, it was for a specific purpose. This incarnate God, Jesus, was prophesied to be the one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. That's Isaiah 53.4. On him would lay, God would lay our iniquity. Isaiah 53.6. He would bear the sins of many. Isaiah 53, 12. He would be the one whom Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7 foreshadowed, where the psalmist says, But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. We read that in Mark 15 today. He would be the king who was to be cut off and have nothing as Daniel foretold in Daniel 9.26. He would be the shepherd who was stricken, according to Zechariah 13.7. You see, this eternal God in the form of the second person of the Trinity was given a unique assignment by God the Father. It was an assignment of humanity that none of us were given, but it was given to Christ. And Jesus had to accept it willingly, and he had to fulfill it, precisely and completely. And the terms were as follows. In order to be a man, you are going to do the following. You must be born in a cold cattle stall. You need to be born into a family encircled with scandal because very few people are going to actually believe the nature of your conception. You're going to be born into a poor family and raised in a poor home. You're going to spend your early childhood traveling to and from Egypt on a perilous road. You're going to be raised in the most obscure Hebrew village, Nazareth. Who's ever heard of Nazareth? It's known for its nothingness. You're going to learn how to scrape a living by making stuff out of wood, carpenter's son. And in all those years, you're going to never sin. You're going to always obey and never complain and never gripe. And all these years, you're going to suffer the pains and enjoy the fleeting joys of human experience. And all these years, you're going to continue to trust in the Father's sovereign will. And then, after you're about 30 years old, you're going to begin teaching and healing your people. You're going to call disciples to follow you. You're going to invest your life into teaching them. And by the way, one of these that you're going to call out is going to be the one who will betray and kill you. You'll need to eat with sinners. You'll need to be associated with prostitutes. You'll need to be keenly interested in the spiritual well being of the most hated kind of people in Israel, the tax collectors. You'll need to show the deepest of love to the most unlovely persons. You'll be tempted to sin. You'll be hungry. You won't have a pillow. You'll be cold. You'll be tired. Yet you'll have people continually clamoring around you just wanting to see you do one of your magic tricks. You'll need to continually trust me and commune with me as your father. and Then you'll be betrayed by one of your own. You'll be denied by those who privately express loyalty and affection. You'll be the recipient of the worst miscarriage of justice in human history. You'll be mocked, you'll be scorned, you'll be spat upon, you'll be slapped, your beard will be plucked and your back will be ripped open, you'll wear a crown of furious thorns, you'll be fastened to a tree by means of nails through your wrists and your feet, you'll be hoisted in the air along with thieves and criminals, and you'll be made a spectacle of what Rome does to the vilest of sinners." But don't worry, I'll be there in sweet fellowship with you through it all, up until this last part at least. Because while you are most vulnerable and weak, while you are hanging in shame and in agony on a cross, when your disciples and your friends have all forsaken you, then I also will forsake you. I will forsake you in the sense that I will remove my face of favor towards you, and I will instead look upon you with an eye of wrath and fury. I will set my justice upon you. I will assemble the army of my great wrath and I will unleash it upon you. And because you will be a man, I will cause all the iniquities of our people to fall justly upon you. And as a man, you will suffer for them. I will view you as if you have actually sinned in human form all the sins of our people. Every evil thought, Every wicked word, every vile deed will be to your account. And you will bear in your truly human body the full weight of my infinite wrath for the transgressions of our people. And then there will be just one more thing that you need to do before it's all over. You will then need to choose to will yourself to die. Those were the terms of the humanity That Christ would have to accept in order to become a man. And notice Paul mentions a little bit of that. Just the end of it in verse 8 that he would have to be found in in human form humbled to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Paul goes to the last of these things that Jesus would have to accept in his humanity. But it presumes all the rest of the things that I just recounted. These were the terms of the contract for the Son of God to become the Son of Man. And by willingly accepting those terms, what other language is there except to say that Christ made himself nothing? If you were to willingly accept those terms as a human, you are taking upon yourself nothingness because you're signing up for a cruel death willingly. The willing acceptance of such a proposal is the very definition of self-emptying. And we know that Christ accepted this plan because of, what? again, what I said in verse 8. He became obedient to the point of death. Jesus' acceptance of being found in human form and all the necessary liabilities that came with it, this is the essence of his emptying. By adding humanity... Even though he retained his deity, by adding that kind of humanity, he became as nothing. And all of that is to answer the question of how we should think about the humanity of Christ. We only have a correct understanding of his humanity when we understand in our minds these things that we just saw from Philippians chapter 2. That he's always existed, yet not always as a man. That he can never be robbed of his deity, even by becoming a man and that Jesus willingly rendered himself as nothing when he willingly became a man. There's a great gulf fixed between the value of his deity and the nothingness of his humanity, such that as a sum total he became as nothing. Let me just give you a quick application at this point. May we not have our emotions wrongly stirred by thinking about the emptying of our Lord. The point is not that you were so valuable to God that he ordained for his son to become nothing in order to rescue you. And that the son then willingly did it because he shared the same sentiment about you. God lacked nothing. God needed nothing. God owed us nothing. There's nothing in us that would make God think that we were worth it. The point in all is that of all this is to see not our worth, but rather our unworthiness. To see that Christ had to become liable because of us in order that he might fulfill the Father's plan of redemption. Because we are under a curse as sinful mankind, Christ had to bear the curse for us as a man. Because we are in captivity to sin as sinful mankind, Christ had to conquer its hold on us, for us. And because we fail to attain God's standard of righteousness as a sinful mankind, Christ had to be perfect as a man for us. So he had to bring all of those liabilities into his humanity just so that we could be saved. And it brought him to nothing. May we realize not that we were so wonderful and worth it to have God's love, rather that Christ loved the Father so much that he would do this for his people. So may we think rightly about the humanity of Christ. We've probably already hit some of the reasons why, We should think rightly about the humanity of Christ because it really impacts us when we do. But let's consider lastly this morning why we need to rightly understand the humanity of Christ. So the next question that we'll consider is this. Why should we think about the humanity of Christ? And I, as you see there, have four reasons for you. There are more than four in Scripture. Some of the most important reasons... Are the ones that I put here to help us as we think about why we should think about the humanity of Christ. And the first one is this we must think about the humanity of Christ so that we might have discernment. We need to think about the humanity of Christ so that we have discernment. If you would, look quickly at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to come to this text in a number of months. As we go through 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we'll see why it is that we need to think about the humanity of Jesus in order to have discernment, and our doctrine in particular. Let me read these verses for us Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that G- that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In the time in church history when John is writing this letter... There is a heated battle raging between truth and a battle of peop- and a group of people called the Gnostics. It's G N O S T I C S, Gnosticism. And these false teachers believe many errors, but one of the most egregious ones is the fact that they believe that Jesus did not truly come as a human. They falsely asserted that some Jewish carpenter who was a pretty nice guy was one day filled with the Spirit of Jesus at his baptism specifically. And so this man could now do marvelous things. But he was just a man, and then he was connected to the person of Christ. So he had two persons, which is the problem. And then the Gnostics taught that the Spirit of Christ then left this man, the Jewish carpenter guy, when he was hanging on the cross. And this is a a really bad and a clearly unbiblical understanding of the humanity of Jesus. But it was prevalently spread across the, the early uh, empire, the early church. It was, a, it was a facet of a cultural idea that was called Platonism, which basically is a philosophical system that says that everything material and physical is bad, and everything spiritual and in our ideas and our minds, that's all good. And so we're always trying to escape the the physical in in order to get to the spiritual. And so the Gnostics wanted to get everything physical about Christ out of the Bible. Because they thought everything physical was bad. But you create heresy when you try to do that. So John is writing this letter partly to warn Christians about those false teachers. And so he says, point blank, verse 2 of 1 John 4, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you hear someone teach that Jesus is truly human, of course, they have to teach other things correctly too. But if they teach that along with other good stuff, you've got a good teacher. But, verse 3, Every spirit that does not so confess Jesus... Basically, everyone who does not confess that Jesus has come as a true human being, they're not from God. So the point is that you can have discernment in who to listen to by thinking about the humanity of Jesus. If the spirit behind someone teaching, someone's teaching denies the humanity of Jesus, they're a false teacher. But if the spirit behind their teaching affirms correctly the humanity of Jesus, then at least at that point they're right. And you have the ability to discern truth from error. And it would be an understatement for me to tell you that we live in a day where doctrinal discernment is vital. I could park a long time in application on this. I could probably step on a lot of toes just by Discussing a lot of the doctrinal problems that exist and some of the things that we're exposed to on a daily basis. Perhaps for another sermon. Just please take time to consider the doctrine of those that you listen to. Consider all their doctrine. Whether it's someone who is a, a, a teacher online or a blogger or a radio preacher or even a songwriter. Place special emphasis on what they teach about the person of Christ. If it's bad, if it's fuzzy, if it's weird, just turn it off. Don't listen to it. Have discernment. Make sure you're listening to those and only those who teach rightly concerning the person of Christ. His humanity specifically. John makes that clear in 1 John 4. So a right understanding of the humanity of Christ helps us to have discernment. Why should you think about the humanity of Christ? Number one, because it gives you discernment. Be discerning. Secondly, we also think on the humanity of Christ in order to have assurance. Thinking on the humanity of Christ gives us assurance. In 1 Timothy 2.5, you can turn there if you like. We have a verse that seems like a random sort of thought in the middle of a section of verses about, about prayer for those in authority. And about how God is a God who has a, has a general gracious love for all mankind. But in verse 5 of chapter 2, we have an earth-shattering truth to consider. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, we read this, "...there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men." The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, the man, is the only way to mediate between God and mankind. No other being is qualified. No angel, no super apostle. Only Jesus can bring God and the sinner together. I'd like to give you a quote from a book that was highly impactful to me a little over a decade ago. It's a little book. It's called Christ, Our Mediator by a guy named C.J. Mahaney. It's a really easy read, a really fruitful read if you want to pick it up. And in this book, he gives us a simple simple and a helpful exposition of the truth of 2 Timothy 2.5. He writes this. Since sin has been committed by a man... Therefore, sin must be atoned for by a man. Only a human being can be the perfect substitute for other human beings. The debt and obligation and responsibility is mankind's alone. Neither you nor I, however, can atone for our sin to satisfy God's righteous requirements. Our own disobedience already condemns us before a righteous God. A divine rescue is necessary. We need a Savior. And in order to be our Savior, in order to pay our debt, this individual must be like us. Not just God in a form that merely appears to be human, but someone fully and truly human. So because we have a mediator who is both God and man, we can have a settled assurance in our hearts that we are indeed reconciled to God. What good would it be for us to have a rescuer who was merely human? God cannot be pleased with anyone who's merely human, for none are righteous, much less there is none who can take his infinite wrath on behalf of others. That would be hopeless to have a mere human mediator. Also, what good would it be for us to have a rescuer who was only God and not human? And we'll discuss this more next week, but our sin deserved death and God can't die. So God can't mediate. Only God can't mediate. We need someone who is both God and man because we have to have death in order to satisfy the demands for sin. The only assuring reality in the world is the fact that Jesus... The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a true man to be our mediator. He is a human in order to save humans and in order to bring them in fellowship with God. So the humanity of Christ brings us assurance. It brings us discernment. It brings us assurance. And then thirdly, when we think on the humanity of Christ, it brings us endurance. It helps us to have, thirdly, endurance. And to this point, let's read from Hebrews chapter 4, one of the most soul-comforting texts for the believer in the whole New Testament concerning the reality of the humanity of Jesus. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Follow along as I read. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the point is clear. Since Jesus was a man, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. What weaknesses do we have? Physical weaknesses? We likely have those for sure. But in this context, we're also talking about the weakness Of our susceptibility to fall into temptation. Jesus wasn't weak. He was strong. But that reality all the more underscores the fact that he was then able to be tempted to the highest degree possible. So imagine a, let's imagine a piece of chain that's being tested to see how strong it is. How do you test to see how strong it is? You add more and more weight to it. And then when it breaks, you know how strong it is. Because it can't hold any more weight. Well, how strong are we? Well, you add greater and greater weights to temptation and eventually we snap. And that shows how strong or how weak we are. Imagine Christ. More, 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 more. More to the greatest extent that was possible, Christ was tempted because he was able to endure to the greatest extent possible. So, when you're tempted, know that your Savior was tempted far more, no matter what the area of temptation was, because he was able to endure far more. He never gave in. As a man, he endured to the highest extent, every temptation. And so when we find ourselves tempted, what ought to be our response? Well, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The throne of grace is ours to approach only because Christ makes it accessible through his work on the cross as an atoning human sacrifice. And the throne of grace is ours to appreciate only because Jesus demonstrated its importance by how long he lingered there. When he was a human, he wrestled with God in prayer, asking for help, and he received it. And so if Christ, our human Savior, did that, much more ought we. So we endure because our divine and human Savior endured And then lastly, in this list of reasons why we must think on the humanity of Jesus, fourthly, we think on the humanity of Christ in order to have hope. Fourthly, in order to have hope. And we'll end today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's here we read about how the humanity of Christ guarantees for us the greatest hope of all. There is no hope like this hope. Look at verses 20 and 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 1 to begin. If by Adam death came, then what is the only way for resurrection to come? If by a man came death, the only possible way for resurrection to come is also through a man. It must be through a man that we get resurrection. That's Paul's logic for verse 21. As by a man came death, so also by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. And verse 20 depends upon the truth of verse 21. Because it is true that a man must bring about the resurrection of the dead, then we see in verse 20 that we have our certain hope for such a reality. And it is Christ who is that hope. Since the man Christ has been raised, we know for certain that he will be this champion who reverses the curse brought upon us by Adam. Isn't it sweet how Paul communicates it for us in verse 20? He says that Christ's resurrection is, look at the language there in verse 20, the first fruits. It's the first of its kind. The first fruit offering was one where you you harvested your crop and you brought the first of it as an offering. Christ is the first of its kind, meaning when we look at how Christ was raised, we catch a glimpse how all the rest of us will be raised. Lazarus was not resurrected. He was going to die again. When Peter raised Dorcas, it was not a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. She was going to die again. When people came walking out of the graves on the day Jesus was crucified, they also were not resurrected because they would die again. But Christ's coming to life again as a man was completely unlike all those other experiences. Because when Christ was raised, he was raised incorruptible. When Christ was raised, he inherited a body that could walk through walls, that would vanish, that would rise in the air, and probably could do a whole lot more. And that resurrection is the first of its kind. And because it's the kind of resurrection that all of his people will one day share in. That's our hope. We are immensely encouraged in this hope when we realize that Christ as a man not only died for us, but he was raised for us. Sometimes we think of his humanity only leading to his death, but may we not remember, not fail to remember, that his humanity is what guarantees our resurrection. Because he ever lives as a resurrected and glorified man. And so also will we live with him, like him, as resurrected glorified men and women. So just to summarize what we've covered today. We learn from Philippians 2 how we should think about Christ's humanity. He has always existed yet not always as a man. He can never be robbed of his deity even in becoming a man and that he willingly rendered himself as nothing when he willingly became a man. And then we see that it is vitally important for us to think about the humanity of Christ in order that we might have discernment, in order that we might have assurance, in order that we might endure, and also that we might have hope. So in this season, may we learn to more and more look with faith and worship to the great mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Father, we are stunned at your wisdom because who would have devised that our Savior would become one of us? And he walked among men and his Feet were dirty on the road that he made, and he was sustained by bread that was fashioned out of the molecules that he created by his word. What humility, but what majesty, what a salvation it is for us to ponder. So Father, we ask that you would help us in this Christmas season to think properly about the humanity of our Lord And also, may thinking on his humanity help us. May it give us discernment. May it give us assurance. May it give us endurance. May it give us hope. And may it give us many other things as well. Possibly, Father, would thinking upon the humanity of Christ bring salvation for someone this Christmas season. May someone realize that in their humanity they are weak. But as the simple children's song goes, though we are weak, he is strong. May someone see for the first time that in their humanity, they cannot make sense of life. That in their humanity, they cannot have satisfaction. That in their humanity, they cannot please you. And may there be those this Christmas season who see that the humanity of Christ is their only hope. Christ punished as a man on the cross, Christ raised as a man from the grave is our only hope, because only he can bring us to you, because he's like us. So, Father, we pray that you would be glorified, not just in this season, but in our lives altogether for the rest of the years that you give us. May you be glorified for the great work that you've done in us through your Son, who is truly God and truly man. We pray all this in His name.